0: Welcome to the Middle East Law and Governance podcast. Middle East Law and Governance is a journal for scholarly analysis focusing on issues of governance and social, economic, and ideological transformation in the modern Middle East and North Africa. And this is our podcast. My name is Ezra Carmel, and today we are lucky to be joined by Bojana Welburn, who is an assistant professor of government at Smith College. She is a co-author of the 2018 Politics of the Headscarf in the United States, and she is currently working on her new book, Women, money, and political participation in the Middle East. Bojena, thank you very much for joining us.
1: Thank you so much, Ezra. um, It's a pleasure to speak with you.
0: No, it's great to have you with us. Um, Would you like to start by telling us a little bit more about yourself and about your research?
1: Um, So basically, I focus on sort of the political economy of the Middle East and North Africa. And I've spent some time across uh, multiple countries in the region, you could say that I'm more of a generalist than a specialist when it comes to Middle East politics. Again, the focus is largely looking at how um, foreign financial incentives uh, galvanize and condition uh, responses on the ground when it comes to women. And so that includes both, you know, political campaigning, as well as like, you know, kind of labor dynamics that might impact the choice of women to engage in politics as well. Now, Of course, this right. is also um, I also explore how uh, domestic politics impacts these choices as well. But I'm really interested in that intersection between um, the foreign monies that come in, whether they're coming in from IGOs or even coming in from diaspora communities um, that are trying to promote certain values and certain ideas in the Middle East and North Africa, and in particular, how that may impact and condition a woman's ability to engage with political processes.
0: Great, and that's a perfect lead into what we're talking about today. As you have uh, an upcoming article mm-hmm. in MELG titled "On Their Own: Women Running as Independent Candidates in the Middle East," uh, and this paper looks at the growing number of women independents who have emerged mm-hmm. across the MENA uh, in the past decade. I mean, you point out in the article that the MENA region leads the world uh, in the number of countries with independent women members of parliament. Um, but despite this fact, I mean, I've I've read very little on independence in the region, mm-hmm. uh, let alone women independence, and. So I was wondering, why do you think there's been so little focus on this phenomenon in the Middle East literature or even in the broader literature uh, on elections? So
1: I think there's actually a limited focus on this in the broader literature of elections, and some of this is just um, what I call the partisan bias and. In, in the discussions that we see that are centered around uh, you know gender and politics and also the Western bias toward like what the path toward political participation is as well as a bias toward like you know kind of looking at the outcome of participation as being necessarily democratic So I think all of these sort of concepts and ideas intersect to make this, particular area of research looking at independent candidates and independent MPs worldwide less popular. It's also really hard to keep track of them because you'll have individuals run as independent candidates, but potentially like join political blocks or political parties once they're in office and and vice versa. You'll have individuals run as uh, party candidates and then become independents when they're effectively in office as well. So it's actually a lot of work to keep track of what's going on. And I'm actually working right now on compiling a data set that explores this issue in the global South with my colleague at Smith, Dr. Adam Waba, who specializes on sub-Saharan Africa. So we're kind of hoping to extend our research from North Africa and Sub-Saharan Africa and the Middle East beyond to countries in Asia and Latin America as well to see uh, how common of a phenomenon uh, this is. But anecdotally, it is fairly common, especially in parts of Africa as well, um, partially because the more paternalistic nature of like, you know, kind of politics but in in some respects, like, you know, moving back to the discussions of why the literature may not deal with this is we have this tendency to think about women's political participation and like women's access to like, you know, kind of politics as one that's largely um, constrained by funds. And that's true in the Middle East as well. Certainly there are cultural factors, but like, you know, kind of those cultural factors are oftentimes also intersecting with financial factors as well so political parties tend to be the easiest way for women to join the ranks of politicians and to enter the political arena especially that's what we've actually seen in a lot of western european countries and we've also seen that in the case of north america so a lot of the scholarship just focuses on this by default. And you'll see in a lot of the papers that are produced, my papers as well, that we always kind of cite the literature that's coming in from individuals such as Wilma Rule or um, Pippa Norris and others that largely focus on what's going on in Western countries, right? Mm -hmm. And political parties tend to be that medium for women to enter the, the political arena. When you go beyond the the West, the focus on the West, all of a sudden you start seeing other venues or other avenues for women to participate in politics. And even though we still see, again, that party dominance in, like, you know, kind of let's say in the Latin American context, but also in the, like, you know, kind of Sub Saharan African context, we also see women coming into politics in other ways as well. And a lot of times this is actually running as independents, depending on what electoral system is in place, and also depending on whether there are gender quotas in place as well. So there's a lot more here that we can actually un- unpack that I don't think we do. And I'm focusing right now on the national level. But once you actually get on the subnational level, this is actually even more common. Now, I haven't had as much opportunity in the Middle East and North Africa in my research there to explore the subnational level, but I know it's fairly common for women to actually run as independents at the subnational level too. In particular, in the North African context, you see less party dominance at the subnational level. So even though you may not necessarily see as many independents at the national level in North African countries where we tend to see partisan politics in play, you actually do see women who are not party-affiliated at the local level. So this idea of exploring local-level politics in the Middle East, but also globally, I think would actually engender even more findings where we actually see, you know, women and men running as independents and successfully filling those offices as independents. A lot of this really does boil down to how dominant the political party apparatus is and how much it's actually used as a mechanism for articulating people's views, right, or or managing people's views if we're talking about authoritarian regimes or quasi-authoritarian regimes so it's not it's not just the question of the middle east it's also a question of the broader world whether we're looking at you know kind of let's say the global north or the global south and there are there are countries in which independence are actually fairly common we see that in canada we see it in japan and we see it in uh, ireland as well and I guess you could say in the Russian case as well. And that's actually quite a, a diverse array of countries that we would say are in, let's say, the global north, right, that actually have independent candidates. But they're also countries that, you know, have opportunities for independent candidates to kind of participate. And usually that's a byproduct either of open list or we're looking at mixed systems that have a plurality flavor to their majority and flavor to them.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And it's interesting that you you bring up the difficulty of sort of tracking people's identification because i'm just thinking in the jordanian case where Mm -hmm. you have a lot of people running as independents but they have to join a list just to participate Mm -hmm. uh, and then they end up having to join a block or they might join a block afterwards which is a completely different identification so almost every candidate will have at least two different identifications to follow let alone any party affiliation
1: I think you're absolutely right, Rezran. this is one of the difficulties that, like, you know, I faced in especially tracking, like, you know, kind of candidates in, in the, the Levant and particularly in Lebanon and Jordan because of the presence of blocs and figuring out whether that actually is operating as a political party, right, right. once in parliament, Right, if you're especially in like say in the Jordanian case where there are nationalists, or whether this is actually a truly independent MP. And this is where we get into the difficulties of actually defining what it means to be independent. Mm-hmm. So my my definition is fairly bare bones, to be perfectly honest. I consider somebody who is not directly affiliating. Or identifying themselves with a political party an institutionalized political party as somebody who's independent but let's say a more strict definition would potentially that say that somebody who's on a national list or part of a national block is technically not an independent and I'm not that strict in my definition and one of the reasons why I'm not as strict in my definition is partially because the reason why I'm interested in this phenomena is because I'm thinking about the funding aspects of it now again if you're running on a national list or with a block especially as A woman, the idea is that you'll probably have more access to funds than not. Mm -hmm. But it's still not as institutionalized, especially not in the Jordanian case. I mean, we've only seen like the last four years of this as, let's say, a political party is. So when we take away the funding aspect from it and we think about the political parties as also much as you mentioned, a mechanism to discipline, let's say, uh, MP behavior and also candidate behavior, and to, let's say, project a specific kind of platform, the nationalists really aren't doing that. And a lot of times the blocs aren't doing that either. They're not providing the same kind of party discipline that we would see even in political parties across North Africa. So I do consider those candidates independents. But I, I understand that you know, some readers might take issue with my definition here. That's actually part of what I'm really interested in this, in this particular exploration. To be perfectly honest, it's very new to me. And as I delved into it more and more, what I really recognize is that there's a need to develop almost a theory of what political independence means, yeah. right? both in terms of campaigning, both at the you know the candidate level, but also in terms of MPs. We really don't have anything akin to this. There's not a lot of discussion of it. And there's not even a lot of discussion of it when it comes to Western examples as well, where we've seen, let's say, more robust attempts at defining what independence might mean is actually in the literature on Ireland, but you don't see it anywhere else. And yet we do see independence across the global North as well. So this is actually an opportunity that I hope to like explore and plumb and that I encourage other people to explore as well because I think independence means different things in different contexts and especially in different parts of the world.
0: Yeah, it's fascinating and I guess it's something that may also be manipulated by regimes as well and I'm thinking again in the Jordanian case where independents are being encouraged to organize across districts so that their lists turn into currents and then once you have a current that is essentially a pre-formed block You're in essence Mm -hmm. talking about a political party, but it's not an official political party. And that's because they're discouraging, I suppose, ideology within the political organization. So, I mean, I guess Mm -hmm. it comes back to, to how both governments define who is an independent as well as how independents see themselves.
1: I think that's an excellent point, actually, and one that I will actually integrate into like future <laughs> research because for the most part, I've looked at this from kind of this macro political perspective, but I mm-hmm. think it's important to consider what governments actually think independence means as well. And I think that most of the time, governments presume that that's that what it refers to is like, you know, kind of a patron-client relationship yeah. that like independents are effectively clients of the state. And, you know, now we can use them as in the Jordanian case to ideally like mold something that looks more democratic, that looks like a political block, that looks like a shadow of a political party, which is not unlike what we've seen, let's say in the case of Bahrain, right? Where mm-hmm. there used to be what were called political society and effectively wound up being like, you know, kind of political parties on the down low. The big difference was that... A at least in the case of, let's say, well, fuck, I mean, it was actually, it did operate in many respects as a formal political party, but wasn't necessarily allowed to openly right. do that. And this is one of the reasons why it was um, the regime, the Bahraini regime was so adamant about essentially undermining it. Yeah, right. So I think this is kind of an interesting phenomenon. It actually allows us to start thinking about the ways that governments are trying to undermine, let's say, more pluralist politics, but presenting it as Um, oh, this is like emergent political parties. But, you know, this is the other side of it, though. I wonder about, yet again, our focus on political parties, and even these governments focus on political parties, which reminds me a lot of the sort of the cosmetics behind women's uh, legislative representation as well, how many Arab regimes, and it's not just Arab regimes, it's not just Mm -hmm. countries in the Middle East and North Africa, but elsewhere, you know, tend to look at gender empowerment and implementing gender quotas and putting women into political office, appointing them, or like, you know, kind of creating incentives for them to participate in politics that are less than democratic, you know, see this as a way to sort of rubber stamp progressive politics, right? Right. And I think political parties are that too, or the illusion of political parties can be that as well, as we've seen in the case of some North African countries too, where it looks like there are, lots of political parties. It looks like there's sort of a dynamic, you know, political situation on the ground. But in reality, that's not the case. There's sort of more of a rotation of different, you know, kind of clients of the regime. And I think Morocco is a really good example of this, to be honest. So it's nice that that rotation exists. It's nice that we go through the socialists. It's nice that that we go through the Maqsan. It's nice that we actually go through the Islamists as well. But there's a big question as to like, you know, kind of whether this is just a rotation of clients of the regime right Right? or or whether these are legitimate political parties so one of the things that i really wanted to sort of impress upon i guess the readership of melg and maybe even um, individuals who study the middle east and north africa is this idea is maybe you know we need to look beyond political parties Mm -hmm. right we've always looked at political parties as the be-all and the end-all in terms of the goal of let's say democratization processes Oh, I totally mispronounced that. Democratization (laughs) processes. (laughs) Apologies for that. Democratization processes or liberalization or an opening of the system. But I guess what I want us to kind of start thinking about is, can you have an opening of the system without political parties? right? Does it happen through political blocks or does it actually happen through independence that once in office decide to go their own way or decide to go their own route? And I think this is one of the things that's sort of interesting about Jordanian politics as well, is that especially with some of the changes that we've seen in the rape law, that's like, you know, kind of article 308, but, and, and, and Jordan isn't the only example of this. I think the examples of this are Especially when it comes to any kinds of introduction of, let's say, reforms of family code or personal status laws, right, into um, various and sundry legislatures across the Middle East and North Africa. What's fascinating to me is how often this happens within rogue blocks of parliamentarians and usually of women. And sometimes they're cross cutting across parties, but in the Jordanian case, in a lot of cases, it's not gonna be a party member that's introducing this. It's not somebody for the Islamic action front that's introducing this, right? It's usually somebody who's independently affiliated. And yes, that person may be in that position because of let's say tribal affiliation or because of other family connections to the regime. But on another level, their independent status allows them to broach these ideas um, in a way that, let's say, somebody within a political party may not. And even somebody who's affiliated with a tribe, you know, you there is some opportunity to engage in independent agenda setting. Right. And that's something that I really want to explore more. Now, I'm not going to lie. I think that independent agenda setting has more legs when it's an issue that's for sure article 308 gets at some of the core issues within jordanian society but it's different than let's say talking about citizenship laws or like you know kind of attitudes towards israel or even completely reforming personal status codes right so really really controversial issues and i think the gender quote is an example of that it is kind of a controversial issue but in some respects it's not right because a lot of i think a lot of mps and they're Jordanians who actually follow this politics, which again may not necessarily be the most common thing. They they see the quotas as just another example of individuals who are loyal to the regime or individuals who are effectively placements by like you know tribes populating politics, and of course, increasingly also. As a venue for, let's say, parties that are less popular, such as the like an Islamic Action Front or Islamist parties or smaller tribes, to actually get their politicians into parliament as well. Right. But I guess what I, I kind of want us to sort of think about here is that over time, maybe not now, but like I think that, especially with 308, I think there's a sign that there could be opportunities for independent agenda setting, and especially agenda setting that perhaps, this is where the independence comes into play, um, coincides with interests from the international community. So so none of this is completely innocent. If, If there hadn't been discussions on reforming rape laws that had been, in some respects, happening in conjunction with pressures from the international community to rethink, like, you know, laws on domestic violence, to rethink laws on sexual harassment, to rethink laws on criminalizing rape, I'm not sure this would necessarily get as much traction. And I'm not sure it would get as much traction because the royal family would not necessarily also, like, you know, kind of be encouraging it. Um, But in this case, it is something that was encouraged. Now, do I think that a male MP from Tefilli would have promoted it? No, I don't. But I'm not surprised that a female MP might kind of latch onto this idea, have support, let's say, from a gongo like the JNCW and, let's say, external international organizations and, you know, kind of push these ideas through or at least bring them into, you know, kind of into the light and into parliamentary debate.
0: Yeah, I think that's an interesting point. I guess there was a certain degree to which Article 308 was already sort of socialized within Jordanian politics, the sort of old civil society actors that have been pushing on that issue for maybe three decades sort of made that a a an issue that could be effectively addressed by uh, by independence in the parliament I, I think you know a few factors maybe have to come together for those sorts of opportunities you know where you have of course like you say international support and you have sort of a boomerang model but then also i think you know and i've been talking to a lot of uh, sort of diplomats out here lately about this, about what sort of issues they're willing to push Mm -hmm. from the international side. And that usually requires having a champion in the government or in the parliament. And if you can get these independent voices within the parliament, then that's actually can be a very important thing for those sorts of, sorts of policy discussions, I suppose.
1: To be honest, it depends on what political parties exist, whether they're strong or not. In Jordan, they're obviously not strong. So like, you know, you are really going to be looking at independence, right? in other contexts it depends on the kind of platforms and the kind of constituents that individual like you know kind of political parties have right. but i think especially for women in the region it's 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 really been this sort of convergence of as you yourself pointed out multiple decades of grassroots actors basically appealing for these reforms i think that's one of the things that i don't discuss as much in my paper and i think a lot of other scholars do is that these things don't come out of the ether. It's not like these ideas all of a sudden emerged in 2016 or 2017 or 2018. And like, you know, voila, we have like, you know, kind of changes, we have more people paying attention to sexual harassment, or that somehow Me Too all of a sudden, like, you know, extended to the Middle East and North Africa. And now we're looking at attempts at changing domestic violence laws. That's not the case. I mean, there have been both feminist and Islamist actors as well that have been pushing for reforms, maybe different kinds of reforms, right? But definitely for reforms when it comes to issues related to gender and certainly issues that are related. I think one of the places where Islamists and like, you know, kind of secular activists can unite are oftentimes, and when it comes to issues of domestic violence and when it comes to issues of sexual harassment, even though they may not agree on other, other issues. Uh, that are related to, let's say, your your standard women's rights platform. And that also kind of depends on which country you're talking about. The IAF in Jordan is going to be different from the PJD in Morocco. It's Mm -hmm. going to be different from Nakhda in Tunisia. There is some overlap because they're kind of drawing their their ideas and ideology in, in some respects for the same Muslim Brotherhood roots. But there's also variation in terms of the experiences of the populations across all these, let's say, these particular three countries and elsewhere. So... Yeah, I think it's there's this important convergence, I think, between grassroots activists and like pressures from beyond the state. And then, of course, you have to have a sympathetic state as well. And I'm not going to lie. Those pressures are usually you know, kind of financial in nature or or there is a reputational gain. I think where this becomes interesting, I think that's. Fairly easy to explain away some of these reforms, right, through, let's say, pressures coming in from multilateral aid agencies, right, in North Africa and in the Levant. Mm-hmm. But where I think it's fascinating is actually in the GCC states, where those pressures don't exist to the same extent. Right. So they're not financial in nature. They're more reputational in nature. And they're more really about, like, I would almost say virtue signaling. Right. <laughs> right. right. But I also think some of it is increasingly anticipating Changes that have already been underfoot and that in some cases have actually taken the potentates that are operating in the GCC states um, off guard. And, right, So a lot of this is actually post hoc shifts yeah. that are effectively addressing situations that are emerging and I would, I dare say, like concerning for um, the rulers of uh, the Persian
0: Gulf. Uh, absolutely, and and you've already alluded to a number of different factors. But I wonder if you could just sort of drive home. I mean, what are the main factors that are leading to women running and running successfully as independent candidates in the region? I mean, to what extent are these institutional factors? Are we looking at a cultural phenomenon, or is it a mixture of the two?
1: Mm-hmm. So I think that's a. I think that's a. A valid question. The article itself really focuses on the institutional impact, but some of that is a byproduct of the condition that I had to like, you know, kind of, so confine this to about 8,000 words, right? Right. (laughs) So I, 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 yet again, I really want your readership who hopefully takes a gander at this article to realize that, I mean, I talked about the institutional side, but there is a cultural side that's really important here too. And I think some of that cultural side is like a shift in you know, gender relations in the region, you know, certainly over the last 20 to 30 years. And certainly some of that shift is, you know, it's some of it's yet again come from the convergence from like, you know, kind of actors on the ground, but also like, you know, some of the changing shifts that we've seen um, globally, right, especially this trend toward promoting issues related to gender empowerment, gender mainstreaming, that have sort of trickled down to countries that are um, tied to IGOs and that are maybe in some cases contingent on IGOs. So I think that does create the situation where you do see institutional policies such as gender quotas or electoral shifts such as like, you know, kind of open lists, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, or the shift toward proportional representation versus like, you know, if the common majoritarian systems that used to actually be the dominant across the region right uh and certainly in the Levant and like when there were electoral politics in the GCC something that has actually changed drastically over the last 10 years now those ideas a lot of them are actually like you know kind of top down shifts that have created these institutional incentives, but have also created like, you know, kind of cultural incentives as well. I mean, I think part of what's happening here is with the advent of gender quotas in the new millennium, which is when we see most of them being implemented or re-implemented, right, and certainly increased over time with 2000 and onward. I, I think there's also a shift in terms of Women's idea of whether they can run for office and when. I think they actually see that they can run for office and when. And of course in contexts where you don't have political parties or where partisanship isn't necessarily encouraged or where it's illegal such as in the GCC states, you know there's only one way to run. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and like you know either you're appointed to that position or that a position is padded for you or you actually run as an independent. Right. And certainly a gender quota allows for that to happen in the context of let's say jordan but in the context of let's say the persian gulf states where you don't have gender quotas it becomes a little bit of a different story you're running on your own accord now i mean that's a little bit of a misnomer because you're not completely running on your own record you're usually running on like your family name as well or like the kind of funding that you can actually bring to the table you're certainly running on your social networks and that's also the case in the context of jordan but i guess you know, even though the article focuses on the institutional side of it, and I really delve into this idea that political parties aren't the only way to go. It's not the only way we see women participate in politics. It's, it's, it's not the only point of access. And outside of, you know, kind of partisanship, like, you know, when we actually see systems that are not just like, you know, I think the biggest danger to independence is obviously closed list PR. You're not going to see any independent candidates in that, in that situation. It's really hard. To run, But in, in systems where there's either a mixed system in place, where there are opportunities to run as independents, opportunities to run on national lists, or open lists in combination with even plurality systems, you actually do start seeing, like, you know, kind of women run in different ways. Women run as independents, women run, like, you know, through, like, the party apparatus. So there is, there there is kind of an important institutional opportunity here, too. But you have to be willing to run in the first place, right? And I think some of that is you know, a cultural shift. Now, I think you're absolutely right to ask me the question of like, you know, this it's a chicken and egg question, right? Mm -hmm. Do women run women, whether for political parties or or whether as independents start running for office because you start putting gender quotas in place. And in some respects, you know, I would say yes. I would say across the region that yes, you know, we've we've seen more and more women run across the board. You know, in plurality systems, as well as PR systems, once once gender quotas have been put into place and we also actually start seeing women run for office in places such as the GCC where you don't have gender quotas in places such as Egypt or in Lebanon and like you know and elsewhere where there aren't gender quotas in place partially because the popularizing of gender quotas and the idea of women in politics right and and gender quotas do a huge job of popularizing women in qu- politics right. to be perfectly honest in some respects as probably the first policy that's largely articulated and pushed by women that actually gets implemented and adopted right and 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 it's one that actually makes a big change it changes the dynamics in in uh within parliaments it changes who gets to run and while that change may not be like you know kind of 30 percent of the parliament is female what it means is all of a sudden you actually see actors in politics that you didn't see before and more importantly you actually have actors in politics that have access to money like, even if you don't think that parliaments are actually representative across the Middle East and North Africa, I think that's, that's a worthy question, <laughs> right? The question of, like, what are they representing?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It's one of the reasons I, I, I really like Lisa Blade's work on this. And also, like, you know, kind of, and, you know, the debt she sort of owes to Ellis Melist Hooker on this is that, you know, parliaments are management tools, right? Mm-hmm. They manage interests, And in particular, they manage who gets money and in some respects who wields Wasta. So who wields like, you know, some kind of kind of social networks and connections that tend to be familial, but they're increasingly expanding in nature across the region. And so now all of a sudden you see, you know, kind of, let's say local chiefs having to like, you know, sheikhs having to actually like, you know, speak to a woman, whereas before they didn't have to do that. But you also see women starting to get like, you know, kind of increasing experience in these positions as well and being seen as actors that can attract money to their respective constituencies. And and, and this is one of the reasons why we actually see like, you know, kind of women reelected as well. I mean, some of them for sure are gaming like the gender quota right mm-hmm. in their respective districts but especially when we look at some of these like local elections i mean i think some of them are like you know kind of winning again because they are, are attracting money to their respective municipalities i know this was the case in morocco i mean you mm-hmm. really had i remember when i was doing field work there the first time i did it, it was really fascinating to me the atlas mountains where they had municipal elections And I think this was like gender quotas had like for the municipal level had just been implemented. And like two of the candidates, I I think it was, they were independent, they're independent candidates. Right. And I can't remember the district, unfortunately, but I remember it was a woman running against a man and they were both illiterate and she wound up actually winning the seats because the community saw her as attracting, to be perfectly honest, like, you know, kind of foreign funding, like foreign aid. And a lot of these sort of, potentially like money to start up uh, you know argan oil businesses and that kind of stuff right whereas the male candidate could only like let's say appeal to some of these traditional seats of power which are, are are fairly effective but like you know kind of foreign money talks as well so this is the other side of this question is especially with so many female candidates you know relying on not all of them right but some of them certainly relying on the ability to attract attention from the government because many of these governments are interested in, again, virtue sing- signaling when it, by r- virtue of women and gender empowerment. You know, does this mean that they actually have more opportunities to attract different kinds of monies. And what happens when you have really strict, let's say, campaign laws or really strict laws on like what kind of money comes into the country, whether it's directed, you know, directly to, let's say, um, like NGOs that are operating in various like, you know, kind of, uh, societies or municipalities, or whether it's filtered through, let's say, a Ministry of Social Affairs, or let's say MOPIC in Jordan, uh, or whether that money is not allowed to come in. Period, as is the case in, like, you know, in, in Egypt, right? Like, how strict those laws are. So, a lot of this will impact whether independent women can run, and also whether, like, you know, kind of women who are partisan can run. That was a very complicated response. I mean, basically, what I want to say it's complicated, right? Mm-hmm. It's, you know, I think the institutional factors. Are, I, I, I will actually stand by the idea that I think the institutional factors are are helping build a culture of women participating in politics. I think that there's always been grassroots movements across the region to get women uh, to be a part of the political process and I think most of these ideas started with these women as well but the existence of an international community that's like you know kind of putting funds behind it and also putting pressure on governments to potentially consider this is huge right Mm -hmm. and I don't know if you'd have gender quotas if you know kind of If Beijing 1995 didn't happen, I certainly don't think you'd have gender quotas. Maybe I'm wrong about this, but my sense of this is like, I don't think you'd happen, I don't think this would happen without the Millennium Development Goal. Uh, or like this bigger, broader, IGO-driven idea that we need women in politics. And one of the ways that this can actually happen for economic development, right? And one of the ways this can actually happen is through gender quotas. And then over the space of like, you know, kind of 10 years between 2000 and 2010, you basically see close to 100 countries adopt gender quotas. And once they're adopted, you actually start seeing, like you start seeing women, like, you know, kind of more women run for office and more women outside of the quotas themselves win. So I think that for sure this plays into women like, you know, kind of winning as independence, right? Running as independence. But I think one of the reasons we also see women as independence in the region is partially because, yeah, there are countries that just don't allow political parties to operate.
0: <laughs> no, absolutely. And I mean, I... You know, a lot of the points that you just made, I see them playing out here, you know, where for example, you end up with a lot of uh, women, as you note in your article that have CSO backgrounds or that's or even INGO yeah. backgrounds, you know, that are able to sort of parlay that into electoral success because they built up those networks and they've built up confidence that they're able to to deliver a degree of money into their communities. In that sense, you know, it may not just be Waston, it may, you know, not just be tribal dynamics anymore, but these other points of leverage that they can offer because of their sort of changing position within the society.
1: I think you're absolutely right, Ezra. I mean, I think that's something, you know, for all the individuals who are critiquing, you know, kind of foreign money and its impact and its influence, right. Then maybe even undue influence Mm. on what um, politics may look like in countries that like, you know, rely on that money on another level, it has given leverage to groups that haven't had that leverage before. Right. Right. So like what they do with it is becomes the key factor. And, uh, and I mean, my sense of it is that like, you know, kind of women across the region, especially elite women, but I think also in some respects, increasingly it's becoming rural women and less elite women as well have been able to leverage this idea that oh, this seems to be important to our government. There seems to be money that's being allocated toward these ideas of women entrepreneurship and women participating in politics, women campaigns, right? Or a certain number of like, you know, kind of women in the political party apparatus of certain parties, there's money associated with it for sure that like, you know, kind of encourages women to think that like, okay, well, we're, it seems that there's some sort of give in the system. Mm -hmm. Um, and i mean a lot of their ability to leverage it also kind of depends on their experience. So i don't think it's a i don't think it's an accident that a lot of the independent women that you see, right, are as you said are coming with cso backgrounds, they're coming with backgrounds where they've worked for you know kind of uh, either companies or like you know kind of ngos that are associated with either the government or they're associated with international actors right because that creates that leverage mm-hmm. but as you said it creates a different kind of leverage than a lot of you know kind of yet again like you know the sheikhs that will run for office or like the mm-hmm. traditional characters that will run for office under the auspices of a tribal party and 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 for sure like you know it's not like you know there's a really good um article by i, I think it's uh Gao and bush that talks about like you know kind of small small tribes using like the quota to actually populate the Jordanian Parliament with uh, with you know their acolytes right I mean I I find that kind of interesting and I think it's a fascinating like you know kind of way to operate in politics because it's basically telling us that the quota is being used for two things right it's like you know or women <laughs> like who are running mm-hmm. for office women independence in particular in Jordan are are sort of you know we have these like, you know, kind of interesting streams happening, right? We have, you have some women who are like, you know, very conservative representing tribal dynamics and for all practical purposes, operating at the behest of um, the tri- their tribes, right? Mm-hmm. Then their tribes, which I also think is actually an interesting and important dynamic, whatever people may say. They're very dismissive of it. But on another level, you have this other kind of stream coming in, as you said, is this very, you know, kind of, uh, almost international feminist, transnational feminism informed stream that's come that of of women who are running for office who are coming in from this uh, experience, like working for civil society for a different kind of civil society. And I think the merger of both, like, you know, kind of allows for interesting, interesting dynamics in the Jordanian parliament, parliament, even though Many people would say that it's more of the same, just slightly different actors.
0: <laughs> but I, I mean, I really like, you know, I, I mean, you, you've made it clear talking now, but also in the article looking, you know, between the sort of cases of Jordan and Egypt and Oman, that there's, you know, very different dynamics in these three countries of different factors that are coming together that are sort of being um, used to create different roots for women into political life in each of these contexts. And that sort of, I mean, just reinforces how much we we don't want to focus sort of on specific Western models or specific sort of best practices that are used, you know, by by development organizations. And that's something that we constantly see here is, you know, the same models being used over and over again, especially focusing on partisan um, politics rather than independence. But the need to sort of push or look at other access points for women into politics, because they're just, you know, not necessarily the same ways that they're going to be in in any other context.
1: I think this is true. You know, again, you know, if you read any of these reports that are coming out of um, the various and sundry, you know, international organizations, Um, or uh, donors that are like, you know, kind of operating in, um, in the region, right? The emphasis is almost always on how can we strengthen political parties? How can we Mm -hmm. make partisanship work? Right. And, you know, I I think that's, I think that's important too. Don't get me wrong. But as you pointed out, you know, if there are other access points, what about, why not think about like, where are the ways to revitalize those access points? As averse to like, you know, kind of focusing on something which which may be a non-starter in, in some of the states that we're looking at, to be to be perfectly honest. And part of part of the reason why it's a non-starter is because in some in some countries you've had like you know 50 years of basically very weak political parties. And mm-hmm. and and switching to a, a proportional electoral system isn't gonna change that overnight. I think Lebanon really showcases that, <laughs> right? And like so does Jordan, to be honest. It's yeah. not like you know, kind of all of a sudden the Jordanian parliament is chock full with political parties. Yeah, there are more political parties, but the parliament is still like, you know, kind of not really shifting as much as you would expect from this from this change. Now, no. the other thing we need to realize is that there's also institutional stickiness. So, so yeah, it takes a time for these kinds of shifts or these changes in electoral politics to actually, you know, work themselves out through the population and for the population itself, as well as for political parties to understand what's going on. I think this is one of the things that was so interesting in the Lebanese elections of 2018 is that what was, I think it was four or five months before the elections, all of a sudden they decided to say that we're like, you know, we're halting proportional elections, right? In, in, a, in a country where nobody really knew what that meant. And and so you you know the discussions that I participated in in um, the run up to this were were fascinating to me because I would I would talk to you know various and sundry candidates and like you know also scholars and it was it was unclear to me that it was obvious that the people who were voting knew what was going on. Right. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, I, I definitely think that, you know, the, 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 the Shia parties did. Right. <laughs> but yeah, I'm, it's not clear to me that the future movement really understood how this would change like political dynamics. And, and, and then even that the electorate really understood how it would change political dynamics. So I think, especially in the Jordanian case, part of the issue is, that, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like almost every single elect, national election that we've seen over the last 20 years has actually seen a new electoral law,
0: Absolutely. right? Absolutely, yeah.
1: So I think it's, it's, it's really hard to gauge what's going on with Jordan because uh, they haven't given it a chance to actually, you know, to sit for more than like kind of four years with a given electoral change.
0: Yeah. And, and I mean, that's, you know, that that's a really important point because, you know, you're exactly right. There's been a new election law for every single election since the parliament was reintroduced after the, yeah. the law in 1989. But this yeah. election will actually be conducted with the same election law for the first yeah, that's time. True. Yeah. Um, and so, I mean, that's quite, you know, an interesting opportunity in a sense, because, uh, you know, I've been talking to the political parties a lot lately and, you know, how yeah. they're trying to figure out how to to essentially game the system for the first time because they've never really had that opportunity before. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's really interesting. I mean, in the last election, you know, that was run under the same system, Mm -hmm. you know, 17 women uh, ran as independents and Mm -hmm. five won outside of quotas. And I guess now it's it's figuring out whether the the new strategies will help to get any more women into power. I mean, mm-hmm. candidates in the last election ran, you know, under these very weak lists with filler members in order to propel single candidates into the House based yeah. on older thinking of, of how to participate in elections. Um, but now they're trying to put together the strongest lists they can and link those lists together across districts. Mm-hmm. Um and so I guess the question is how is that going to affect the participation of women within within the election I mean I don't know if you have any thoughts on that but um but it certainly will be an interesting election to observe
1: I mean I think uh... Yet again, I think you're right in pointing out to people that, you know, this is sort of a fascinating moment, right? Especially for scholars of Jordan, but also scholars like, you know, kind of 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 gender and politics and electoral systems in general is like, you know, can a country that switches over into open list PR, you know, really sustain these gains that we had in 2016 through 2020. And especially with like a different conceptualization by the parties themselves and also by the candidates themselves of what like nationalists mean. Mm-hmm. So I would totally venture a guess at this <laughs> under normal circumstances, but I mean I, I don't think we can ignore yeah. the importance of COVID. No, that's right, true. In terms of what these elections are going to look like. Um so I haven't taken a look to see yet, and I don't I you know I should actually ask you, like who's actually filed to run for office or who's um, I, I think the laws are still the same, that you, if you're a civil servant, you have to um, quit your job, by, I think, 60 days before the elections themselves to actually run for office. I don't know if they've changed that. So there's not a lot of time to do this, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I believe that the elections were just called in July. And, and with COVID, right, it, it sort of, you know, the, 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 the campaign strategy is, is going to have to shift, you're actually in Jordan right now, so you're probably a better arbiter than I am of what that might start to look like, both for men and women. I'm obviously this is not just an issue that like women mm-hmm. face. The one thing, you know, this is really interesting because I, I haven't been with women on the campaign trail in Jordan and I I really wish I had like I when I interviewed them, I interviewed them about their anecdotal experiences, but right. their anecdotal experiences were similar, but also different. Right. Um, smaller districts were obviously, obviously easier to navigate, you know, individuals who had and as I point this out in um, in my paper as well. Um, a lot of women who were actually in had an, ed- an educational background and were in education found mm-hmm. it easier to actually, like, you know, kind of uh, campaign in their respective districts because they already had that social network through being involved in schools, both across men and women. Same thing with CSOs. Um, and but then, of course, there are like you know the patriarchal challenges that women face in going out and campaigning. Well, this is a situation in which that's going to be very different, right? Yeah. In which, to be perfectly honest. Some of the challenges that women used to have, right, not necessarily it not being appropriate for them to host feasts, although many did, but like some might not have done that, right? Mm-hmm. Or like, you know, kind of large gatherings in their tents, or even like, you know, kind of showcase themselves. And then again, Egypt is going to have the same thing, probably in three months, it's going to have the same challenges, right. right? probably even bigger challenges, to be honest, because of its own struggles with covid the question becomes how many of these candidates are actually going to engage in virtual campaigning and what virtual campaigning is going to look like. Now, oh. in urban areas, you know, we have some ideas of what this might look like right through, you know, some of the campaigning that's started through social media and what have you. But in rural areas, I'm really curious. And one of the things that I, I, I encourage people to focus on and I hope um, – you know, some of the scholars out there really pick up on is how this might actually compare to what we've actually seen in countries that are even more conservative, such hmm. as the GCC states, right? And especially, you know, those Saudi municipal elections in 2015. Now, it's not like a lot of women went office back then, yeah, right. right? But most of them engaged in almost entirely, exclusively virtual campaigns because of the segregation laws in 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 um, in Saudi at the time. So I'm I'm really curious about where these women are going to get ideas from campaigning from, right, as well as men. Because at this point, you know, the experts on these kinds of campaigns are actually women who have not been allowed to show themselves, women who have not been allowed to campaign either by virtue of the countries they're in or by virtue of the parties or the movements or the ideas they represent, right, who have actually relied on these virtual mechanisms. My fear is that people won't rely on virtual mechanisms right so i'm I'm curious what your take uh, on the situation is right now because i I honestly don't have an idea I don't know what the campaigns will look like, so it's hard for me to basically be able to say how much another run at the same you know kind of electoral system will help women mm-hmm. or men for that matter like what's your sense of it Ezra
0: yeah I mean I think what you were mentioning about campaign tents is is Really important, and I think that's a, an interesting point heading into this. That I think Jordanians, unless the situation gets much worse, will probably ignore a lot of the regulations that were put in place. But if the campaign tents do decrease in importance, then that it, that's a very interesting change. I think maybe another relevant factor, you know, is the economic sort of situation that, that people are in now might make vote buying even more important. So then you're looking at, yeah. you know, higher importance of, of funding. But then maybe that also will be higher importance of people who have a civil society background and have sort mm-hmm. of a tradition of providing welfare. Exactly. Um, you know, so that that could play into that as well. On the social media front, you know, it's hard to say. I mean, most of these parties and candidates are are venturing into social media now for the first time because they've almost never used that platform before. Exactly. Um, so I don't know how effective that's going to become in just a couple of months. My guess is is probably not very. Mm-hmm.
1: What is the, what is, do you have any sense of what the smartphone penetration of Jordan is? I mean, Jordan has always been relatively ahead when it comes to the region outside of, I would say the GCC. So I mean, um, I'm, I'm curious about that. I mean, I think that's something to look into, right?
0: Yeah, I, I don't know the number off the top of my head, but I think it's it's quite high. I mean, internet penetration mm-hmm. in Jordan is very good. Um, and, you know, I, I mean, just the amount of people that, that use sort of WhatsApp and Facebook in Jordan, I think it's, you know, pretty well everywhere at this point.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, you know, we'll see, right? When it, the campaigns, I mean, some of this goes back to sort of your point is whether campaigns even matter. Right. If this is about vote buying, if this is about money, then I think we can kind of assume that even, um, you know, even a PR open list system is not necessarily going to advantage women more, and especially if it really falls back on like just the sheer access to money, I think it would probably advantage them less in these circumstances. So whether they're whether they're independent or partisan. Um, but I think that would probably indicate that there's a bigger chance that yet again the women who are successful as independents are obviously women who get in like you know on the gender quota and are able to reach a broader swath of society, um, but they're going to have to have money to reach that swath, like you know, and yeah. um, and to also build attractive campaigns on social media or if people ignore you know the, <laughs> the yeah of the government. Yeah, you're right. Yet again, like, you know, kind of build a socially distanced tent. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and um like engage in like you know, vote buying. <laughs> yeah. So I mean I, I, like you said, I think it still boils down to deep pockets and um Women just don't have them they don't have them to the same extent across the region, and in particular, one of the things I've always found super surprising is that um, they really don't have them um, in uh, the Jordanian case right yeah. It's just that there's not as many women, which always shocks me in the labor force right because it's the near the Jordan caste in terms of certainly if you if you're active in the you know in the community that like focuses on gender advocacy and so forth. You know, it'd be easy to take, it would be easy to look at Jordan in terms of, you know, the country reports that are being issued, all of the various and committees and associations and gender mainstreaming ventures that are being introduced to like, you know, kind of see this as a country that's at the forefront of women's political and economic participation. In some respects it is when it comes to political participation, but in other respects when it comes to economic participation, it's very low. It's it's low compared, you know, compared to North Africa and the GCC. Right, which is which somewhat and Lebanon is the same way, right? You see women visually, you know, through the media, right, in these positions, professional positions, but in practice, it's they're few and far between. So it's like this access to the kind of money, the funds, and the political and the clout that would allow women to launch campaigns is still limited, and I think does require some, obviously, some intervention on the part of the government.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, it'll be. An interesting election to observe, and I think not just in yeah. Jordan, but, you know, the the ones to come across the region.
1: But, Definitely. Um,
0: but that's probably a, a good place for us to leave it today. Um, so, Ojeena, mm-hmm. thank you very much for joining us.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Ezra. It was my pleasure. Thanks for, like, you know, uh, bringing up so many interesting points and asking uh, good questions.
0: No, uh, thank you again for joining us. Thank you. Uh, and thank you to, to everyone who listened in. We'll be back soon with another episode of the Middle East Law and Governance Podcast.